My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. Look, I've gone on record many times before saying I still think we're in a bear market. And I know that sounds crazy and people think I'm being a perma bear, but the reality is bear markets tend to end with a bang and you did not have the VIX spike. You did not have credit spreads blowing out, right? So uh, I get it. Everyone looks at the NASDAQ and I, I put that tweet out over the weekend, uh, thanks to a friend of mine, uh, uh, Martin, who did the work on this with me. But yeah, the NASDAQ's up 32, 33% year to date. So everyone's like, oh, it's a new bull market. Okay, first of all, the new bull market started in October. Right. It's, it doesn't start after the, the market moves, it starts before the market moves. Right. But even more so than that, um, history has shown plenty of times where on a rolling 26 week basis, the NASDAQ is up 30 plus percent and you're still in a bear market. Right. On this episode of the Finance Podcast, I have the pleasure of welcoming uh, back Michael Guy. Uh, he's obviously a portfolio manager, published with the Lead Lag Report, which I really enjoyed. I'm sure a lot of your audience uh, enjoyed as well if they listen to you. I'm always impressed by how you pump them out so much, but it's really good content as well. It's just never ending, which is great. Yeah, I appreciate it. It'd be, it'd be good if it's never ending and uh, and write more often than not. That's always the uh, the tricky thing. Yeah, it's always a challenge when you've got so many different opinions. But I guess that's the that's why we love finance and investing because it's always uh, it's a puzzle that we'll never solve, but yeah. we're trying to do what we can. Um, but yeah, I guess, you know, previously, I'm sure your audience heard this quite a lot. Uh, you very eloquently talk about your concerns about what is happening in lumber and uh, in the housing crisis. So I guess from your opinion, why are you concerned? And do you still think this is an issue that will occur in the next, in the coming months slash years? Yeah, listen. First of all, I've been saying it for like a year and a half, right, since lumber like peaked. So it's not like this is a a new dynamic. I just put a piece out that should be available on Seeking Alpha soon, basically making the case that, yeah, the surprise housing starts data today, uh, month over month change, um, historically actually tends to be a little bit of a peak in that month over month change. Um, and believe it or not, lumber actually kind of anticipated that. So lumber prices uh, bottomed uh, in early May. So it does seem to make sense that after a prolonged period of weakness in lumber, you'd get naturally an oversold bounce. Some of these, you know, uh, construction permits, uh, housing starts kick in. Um, but I don't think that that's going to be a long lasting dynamic, which is why I keep going back to I don't think the Fed's finished hiking rates until the housing market is finished because you can't really break inflation unless you break housing. Now, I get all the arguments around <clears throat> low inventory. But uh, let's face it, I mean, you know, the cure to high price is high price. So in other words, you're going to have more inventory just from natural uh, home building catch-ups, right? And lumber is now cheap enough that you might have some some even more act, uh, uh, activity on that end. But keep in mind, that's against the backdrop of mortgage rates at, what, 7%? <clears throat> and you do have, I think, still, um, as much as narrative is following price, you do still have the potential of a recession a credit event, increase unemployment, and then potentially, you know, at the margin, some of these second, third, and fourth home owners that have, you know, basically turned property into rental income, suddenly saying, you know what, yeah, I'm locked in at these very low rates, but I don't need to have that that third home, right, that I'm, I'm, I'm putting out there on Airbnb. So, um, I, I will I will hold back on using the word that I often use on Twitter, which gets a lot of engagement. But I do believe that there is very real risk in the housing market. 
We'll see. I, I, a lot of my, I, I usually come to the standpoint of cynicism around narratives, right? Because I've seen this too many times where there's a narrative and then something else happens and then everyone forgets the narrative that everyone was so entrenched on because something happens and nobody in quotes could see coming. Um, I think we're probably going to see the same dynamic when it comes to this narrative of a tight housing inventory. Yeah, it's interesting. I know in the UK already, that is, which is where I'm based, uh, there's already talk about you know bailing people out of mortgages because obviously we have variable rates here. So uh, it's becoming a, a bit of a burden on a lot of people, especially as you said, because they have those variable rates and a lot of them are refinancing at 6 7%. Um, I'm surprised to hear you say that you think the Fed's going to continue to increase though. Because I, I, if I look at the market, I and this might not be the bond market, but other markets assume that we're done, even though they're saying they're going to increase it by 50 base points in the coming months, it's not going to happen. They've already broken stuff. So why do you think they're going to continue to stay tight? Okay, so I have two conflicting schools of thought on this, right? That even for, my, for me, you know, in trying to figure out where I stand, it's tricky to get a handle on. So when I've used this line many times before, the, the Fed doesn't own the bond market, the bond market owns the Fed. So the idea that the Fed... Um, break something isn't something in terms of the S&P, it's something in terms of credit spreads, right? The differential between def- uh, junk debt and AAA effectively, right? To how the bond market's perceiving default risk. So usually when you have heightened volatility in equities, you'll see credit spreads widen in the bond market. So it's not that the, that the Fed is responding to the stock market, it's responding to you know perception that companies are going to go bankrupt. Now, the reality is spreads have stayed relatively tight. Yes, they've risen a bit, but they're not at the something is broken stage, right? That would, I would argue, give the cover room to keep raising rates because the bond market's saying keep raising rates in terms of that credit spread default risk premium. Against that backdrop, I myself think they probably have already over-tightened, right? Because of, you know, long and variable legs. I said that before, but you know, the regional bank dynamic didn't happen because the Fed hiked rates this year. It's because the Fed hiked rates last year. And nobody has a clue, right, when all these rate hikes really start to come and dramatically, dramatically impact the economy, right? Um, so I think they're going to keep on potentially raising rates just because the bond market is telling them you're okay to do so with spread staying tight. But at some point, the bond market is going to start to realize that uh, it hasn't itself priced in default risk properly, given how fast the rate hike move is. You've got uh, trillions of dollars rolling over on the corporate debt side in the next two years. At some point, the bond market's going to care about that. When the bond market cares about that, the stock market's going to care about that. When the stock market cares about that, everyone starts caring about that. And then the Fed will do what it always does, which is act late. Yeah, so it's what they're uh, what they're good at. So if we look at that, so we've obviously seen the banking crisis and a few months ago with uh, Silicon Valley Bank. You know, I'm sure everyone's <laughs> lots of people talk about that. Do you see? Are there any other, I guess, parts of the markets that you're concerned about, or parts of the economy that you're concerned about? Where you could you think there could be a bit of a blow up like that that you're currently seeing, or is it not really? Uh, showing? Yeah, maybe it's certainly possible. Listen, I, I, I Look, I've gone on record many times before saying I still think we're in a bear market. And I know that sounds crazy and people think I'm being a perma bear, but the reality is bear markets tend to end with a bang and you did not have the VIX spike. You did not have credit spreads blowing out, right? So uh, I get it. Everyone looks at the NASDAQ and I I put that tweet out over the weekend, uh, thanks to a friend of mine, uh, uh, Martin, who did the work on this with me. But yeah, the NASDAQ's up 32, 33% year to date. So everyone's like, oh, it's a new bull market. Okay, first of all, the new bull market started in October. 
right? It's, it's, it doesn't start after the, the market moves. It starts before the market moves, right? But even more so than that, um, history has shown plenty of times where on a rolling 26-week basis, the NASDAQ is up 30-plus percent, and you're still in a bear market, right? Again, I, I, I don't know. I don't think anybody can ever say confidently whether we're in a bull or bear market except with hindsight. But if we are in a bear market, there's still risks because in bear markets, that's when suddenly things happen. There are tail risks that nobody sees coming. Now, the, the narrative starting June was small caps are going to lead the way higher. I remain skeptical on that, even though, thankfully, my own strategies benefited from that initial surge in small caps. Um, but I find it hard to believe that you have a new bull market unless you have broad-based small cap strength. I find it hard to believe that you have broad-based small cap strength when you have rates still elevated and a lot of these companies are unlikely to survive because they're zombie companies. So I say all that in the context of your question that uh, I don't think we're out of the sort of danger zone by any means. I think there's a lot of narrative following price. That's not me being a perma bear by any means. It's just Listen, my, my bias when it comes to markets is I want to see volatility because that's what risk on risk off is, right? You need volatility for the risk off side to work the left tail. And I want to see an environment where it's not just dominated by large caps, where there's some momentum potential in small caps and emerging markets in some style tilts beyond just growth. Um, if we're in a world of pure, silly risk on S&P only, if I'm wrong, and it's a bull market, but very selective bull market like we've seen this year. Uh, that's going to be a hard environment. If I'm right that you're in a bear market and that's going to result in some rotations, you're going to see a lot more uh, tail events and more of that idea that bear markets make fools of bulls and bears. Yeah, it makes sense. And yeah, it has been fascinating to watch sort of this this whole year. As you said, there's been a very select few companies that have really driven, I guess, most of the growth in the stock market as well as revenues, as well as every, basically the economy. So there's really been a reliance on those, I guess, big eight companies driving, driving the markets. So you- yeah, and, and by the way, I will say real quick, because so, I saw somebody put that tweet out. So I, 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 I looked at the, the, uh, the QQQ, NASDAQ 100 ETF. Top 10 holdings 10 years ago were... 50% of the ETF. Now the top 10 holdings are 60% of the ETF. And <clears throat> somebody sent me a tweet saying, oh, you know, look at this research. That's not uncommon to have, you know, concentration. Most gains tend to come from concentration. Yeah, but not to the point where you're getting uh, idiosyncratic risk in an entire diversified index. It's like there's concentration and then there's, you know, select companies basically being the market. When in reality, or at least people's perception of the market, when in reality it's not. <clears throat> and and if you think about it from the standpoint of just behavior, you get any kind of high volatility risk off thing that happens. Behavior finance would argue that the first thing people do is they sell their winners. They don't sell their losers because they want to get back to break even from their losers. They sell their winners. Well, what are the winners? So happens it's, it's, it's those top 10 stocks. So uh, when I say that NVIDIA is, without saying the word, right, on Twitter, uh, as I do, uh, I'm not just saying that because of valuation. I'm saying it also because history has shown that people do, uh, when they panic, they don't panic with that which is already a loss, right? So, And there aren't that many true big winners this year. So there's a lot of potential for these top magnificent seven names that have been driving people's perception of the market to be sources of liquidity. Yeah, I think I saw this, uh, and I, you know, it was on Twitter, so I'm not sure if it was uh, true or not. Uh, and you, maybe, maybe you posted it. So, uh, 
but it was uh comparing nvidia to uh cisco i think at the peak of the sort of yeah yeah Yeah, did you put yeah so and that was saying that basically the price of sales is exactly the same as as cisco which is a scary the the thing is so look i get it It, maybe it's gonna be like amazon right that had a pa elevator for a while and then it, it grew into maybe i don't i don't dispute that that's possible but it's like you really want to bet on that i mean I'm the first one to say that you cannot time anything based on valuation. So it's not necessarily an argument for sell it now, right? But it, that's what's so funny about me using the NVIDIA tag on Twitter to get uh, people's attention on it. It's like, okay, so if NVIDIA were to go round trip five years from now, okay, great. You made money from your gamma squeeze, right? From your options. But the argument that NVIDIA is overvalued and then got, gets corrected means that it was still right to warn of it, Right. I think what's missed in a lot of these discussions is timeframes, right? If you're going to be an investor, I don't think you want to touch, uh, at least in a meaningful way, NVIDIA because of the starting valuation being as high as it is. If you're a trader, you want to do it based on options movement, you know what? Have at it. Maybe you can do it right. Maybe you can get lucky. Maybe you can do it based on skill. I have no idea. I don't care. But I just think it's a dangerous game to totally avoid uh, reality on the ground that History has shown there are plenty of companies like this that end up going nowhere for a decade afterwards. Yeah, definitely. So if, while if the companies we... are growing, while the companies are growing, I mean, that's the other thing too. It's like there's a difference between you know revenue fundamentals, the company, and the stock. The stock is not being driven by fundamentals. It's not being driven by AI. It's being driven by people. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. So, what other, I guess, macro drivers are you currently watching? Um, to, to pay attention to, uh, yeah, I, I guess that potential bear or that potential reversal to, to a bull market. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, it's been talked about in nauseam, but you know, certainly the inverted yield curve. Yeah, nobody cares about it until stocks actually start going down, right? It's 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 again the narrative always follows price, but I do think that um, I wonder if the student loan repayments. I've written about this at the lead lag report and on my tweets and all this stuff published it. The, um, I do wonder if the student loan repayment thing ends up being a much bigger deal than people realize uh, in terms of just consumer spending power and and where it's being spent and other kind of secondary tertiary knock-on effects. Um, the fact that credit card interest rates are pretty much at all-time highs, right? It's like that doesn't change behavior right away. It's like the old adage, right? It takes 21 days to form a new habit. It takes time, right, for consumer behavior to change. But at some point, those higher rates have got to creep in to, to people's uh, decisions on what they spend money on. So, yeah, I don't know if it's anything sort of specific as opposed to just, again, the, the, the catch up and realization of what higher rates are ultimately going to mean, um, which, again, would suggest that you probably do have a credit event. That you probably do have something that does break in a real traditional sense. Um, now, keep in mind, that's not all doom and gloom, right, because I do think that in particular, emerging markets probably get some momentum. Uh, China in particular, you know, everyone's focusing on inflation coming down in the US. China probably has to stimulate hard because they're potentially facing deflation, right? The whole reopening narrative ended up being complete nonsense. It didn't really do anything for the economy that was meaningful and inflation has gone the exact opposite way of everyone else's reopening experience. So, you know, I think that the, the, the takeaway is that there's going to be more risk and it's not going to be just dominated by large cap momentum going forward, which again, I go back to is my bias, but one that I think inherited, inherently makes sense. 
Yeah, it does make sense. And as you said, with those credit events, you know, be it a consumer, be it a business, be it anything, they're going to do whatever they can to not default. They're going to try and, yeah, you know, use, use every resource at, at their disposal. It seems like they're doing that at the moment. And yeah, just how long can you do it with current conditions? Yeah. And, that, and, and nobody knows the answer to that, right? Just because I, I've been, it's like people think I'm, I'm trying to have both ways. It's like, all right, so when we talk in, the, in this framework, we're talking about endpoints. Right. We're talking about okay, this is likely where things will, will will be based on you know various data points. But how you get there is what matters. Right. It's like there's a reason why I always say path matters more than prediction. Right. So you can be risk on and playing small cap momentum and still believe that small caps are going to be terrible longer term because of the zombie company dynamic. You can still believe that NVIDIA is going down and still play it on the long side, right? For the here and now. That doesn't mean that you're wrong saying that it's in, in it's in trouble, right? From a from a longer term perspective. So, you know the the path dynamic. I, I, it's 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 always amazing. People people trade, but they don't understand sequence in terms of you know marrying a viewpoint and the way markets actually move. Yeah, it's never a good idea to. Uh... <laughs> be too dogged in, in one approach or another so yeah. you have you have mentioned that you sort of expect a, a melt up uh potentially and uh, yeah as we said we don't know the time period but sort of after this potential big drop in the in the bear market um that big sort of a final event you would see expect a melt up why is that well no so, so to be clear i said i think we have a melt up in the context of a bear market okay so it's it's which is what's funny it's like i i was very loud saying melt up in october you know, and then other than the December period, which I thought was high risk and ended up being the first worst December in history, I then set back to melt up again in January. Right. I said there might be a, a risk of a traditional correction third week of April. It didn't happen in large cap averages, but the truth is a lot of things weakened beneath the surface. And then the signal is all dated, went back to risk on end of May. So benefited from risk on move in June. But you can have a melt up, which to me doesn't mean S&P 10,000. It just means a very sudden FOMO type of trade, which is what you're seeing in the NASDAQ. And still have that happen in a bear market. It's like, this is what, I, I don't understand why people don't understand that I'm not, a melt-up is not necessarily, uh, does not necessarily equate to a secular bull market. It just means a very sudden, aggressive move higher that sucks a lot of newer bulls in. And I have to tell you, uh, I can't bash test it. The, the sentiment and vitriol that I got at the October lows when I said, End of the world is at hand. That's why a stock market meltups about to take place from the bears. I was getting it back then. I'm now getting it from the bulls. And the funny thing is that not only am I exposed to equities, right, in my own strategies, which are rules based, which run the exact same way, whether I'm dead or alive, but I was the one that said it's a melt up before all these other people started screaming it, you know, lately, right? So uh, I don't know, man. It's, um, I always go back to markets humble everybody, just not all at once. Right. So I, I think there's going to still be a lot of humbling. But if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. What matters is not my opinion. What matters is the sequence, the path, the conditions. Yeah, it's a great point. So, Michael, thanks again for your time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I guess my last question is, what is one message you want people to take away from our conversation? I mean, I think the big thing is just, you know, don't. Don't fall for the overconfidence of the crowd. Right? I've used that line before. Uh, the crowd is right on average, but wrong at the extremes. I would argue that we are at an extreme now. Extreme in terms of divergence between tech and everything else, large cap and small cap. 
extreme in terms of large cap U.S. momentum against international. Extreme from a sentiment perspective, when you look at fear and greed indices, right? Extreme from mass allocation. Like you've got a lot of extremes that are happening now, which can get more extreme. No, no disagreements, right? But I think the takeaway is overconfidence is the one commonality between tops and bottoms, right? So when you start seeing people getting overconfident that they can predict the future, all that means is mitigate risk. That doesn't mean shorting. That means, you know, reduce exposures because in the event that the crowd is wrong, they're going to be really wrong. Yeah, the means don't normally, uh, sorry, the uh, extremes don't normally last forever and go back to the mean generally. Yeah, and, and, and they tend to go and go past the mean because mean yeah. versus means by definition, you have to go past the mean. Yeah, exactly. Which would be, uh, be interesting to see what happens. So thanks again for your time. Um, so I know, you know, we've mentioned the lead lab report. Is that the best people, uh, place people can find your work or is there anywhere else? Yeah. And, and YouTube, Instagram, Twitter at lead lab report is my handle on the, the main platforms. Um, uh, but no, I always appreciate, uh, chatting with you. I'm sorry. It's a little, little bit curtailed, but, uh, it's, uh, is what it is. That's yeah, no problem. It's always, uh, it doesn't matter how long, five minutes, an hour we, uh, we get it done, which is the most important thing. But yeah, thanks so much for coming on again. Yeah, good stuff. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released. I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading, and finance. See you on the next show.